on October 21st. Opera box score hits Dallas hard. The OBS tackles the week's opera headlines and body slams them into a sports talk radio format. Featuring a deep roster of panelists, plus exclusive guest interviews, insider takes on opera's closest calls, and a healthy dose of sports talk. Unnecessary roughness on the kicking team number 92. America's talk radio show about opera is now on the Dallas Opera Network. Three yard attempt from the right hash mark. OBS, TDO, WTF. And oh, he hits the upright again. That's impossible. Wednesday, October 21st at 9 p.m. Central. It's Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. It's Opera Box Score. On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, it's our Halloween spooktacular this week. We talk terrifying operas and watch some nightmarish scenes. And then Oliver and Matt go inside the huddle with the tall and talented tenor Benjamin Bernheim, Warning, Oliver has become a falling hazard, and if you watch carefully, you can literally see the moment he falls in love with the French matinee idol. That's scary. Plus, in the two-minute drill, if you have to wear a mask to go to the opera, can it be a Halloween mask? Oliver Camacho on the show tonight, of course. How Hello. are you? I'm great. Sorry, I don't have a costume. I'm such a Halloween grump. <laughs> I usually not. I'd like to stay away from home so I don't have to deal with kids. I actually love kids. I just don't want to give them diabetes. <laughs> Weston Williams. Uh, well, as you can see, I have a costume. I'm the um, ghost of former Alabama football coach Bear Bryant, as you can tell by the houndstooth pattern on my ghost ether. And also a shout out to my mother, who no joke sent this to me. Because it has the uh, little OBS logo right there. Isn't that great? Oh, that's Isn't so that adorable. Branding. <laughs> Amazing. Matt Cummings, tell us about your costume. I'm going as the concept of sweater weather, because today it snowed <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> it did. And Ashley Hardgrave, you look fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Any excuse to wear a wig? Uh, and also, hope is contagious. So I am the hope monster. Very spooky uh, indeed. The Dodgers certainly hopeful they are on the brink of a World Series win, uh, taking on Tampa Bay in Texas, in Arlington, of all places, tomorrow night. Um, Dallas Cowboys, by the way, have won two games. That would be three less than the Cleveland Browns. Matt, how's your team doing? The Pittsburgh Steelers are still undefeated, and everyone in my hometown is probably holding on to that for dear life. Ha 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 ha! Tell us about the Bears, Ashley. Uh, well, if you're listening to us, the uh, game is already over, but it's not over for us. It's happening right now. Uh, <laughs> Rams have the ball still scoreless in the first. 
<laughs> the time-space continuum just exploded. Let's talk some opera. <laughs> Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Happy Halloween, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us, wherever you are, whoever you're listening. Halloween. I like Halloween. I really get into Halloween. We, we, we couldn't tell from your masked intro there. The theatricality. It, it, all of our listeners who are listening on the audio-only version, you are missing out. Go to the Dallas Opera Network, find this episode, and watch George whip off his terrifying mask and his adorable tricorn hat it in was real sort of time a, and just feel eyes it white with shut us. type of deal. So. <laughs> let's hope, I mean, that's what it, let's was, hope so. not. <laughs> Halloween is suitably spooky. We thought we'd let you know of some of our most scary opera choices. For me, without question, one of the scariest productions I've seen recently was the production of Dvorak's Rusalka at the Komischer Oper in Berlin. This was in 2016 when I was in Germany for a little bit. Drink, drink. Everybody with the drinking jokes already. I, I thought we were going to get rid of that when we moved to the video. <laughs> Some carryovers uh, are too good to give up. This production was directed by the intendant of the Komischer Oper since 2012, the Australian Barry Kosky. Oh, and Barry. Uh, let's just take a quick look at the promo clip from the Komischer Oper, and then I'll tell you three things that really freak me out. All right, then. So because we are a video format now, uh, we have for our um, listening audience who are doing podcasts only, we're going to have to have you explain what we just saw, George. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure most of the audience at the Komischer Oper also wanted to have explained to them that they were watching. Uh, basically, there's three moments in this production that really stand out to me. First of all, the transformation of Ruzalka from mermaid into human being is done in this brutal way where um uh basically like it's it's she, surgical that's what it's it is surgical it's, it's surgical. surgical right yeah she's not a beautiful mermaid she's sort of like a, a a whale in terms of the costume design and basically the her spine is sort of dug out of her back and ripped out Ooh. of her like she's being deboned like a fish it, it definitely <laughs> gave me the willies that i was watching it the free willies absolutely <laughs> horrifying <laughs> and very sort of like on brand for barry kosky too because when i hear barry kosky i always think of the the silent film magic flute that's like my go-to thought and there's a lot of like influence with like the the german expressionism in terms of like the design and the um sort of the grim but playful aesthetic which is very halloweeny to me so like even though it is gruesome to see the uh, 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 the the tail being cut off with a knife. It's also got like just that li- little bit of Halloween delight. I think. Yeah, there's uh, definitely a Tim Burton whimsy to it. But can you right. describe the set design because that's sort of to me problematic. And maybe this, you can defend it. So absolutely. So the scenic design, and if you watch the video, it's, it's relatively close up. But um, there is essentially one entrance onto the stage the entire stage is like a big band shell it's just a single wall with a single door center stage it is so claustrophobic 
that it just freaks you out looking at it, that there's only one way in and there's only one way out. <laughs> Definitely Welcome drives home the difference box. between like European Brothers Grimm style fairy tales and the Disney movies that we grew up watching. <laughs> Absolutely. The third thing that really freaked me out about the production, and it has to do with that um, sort of bandshell uh, uh, structure that is um, on the stage with that single entrance. So the bandshell, it has a, a, a molding that kind of runs around its perimeter to give this this sense of an interior. As it turned out, there was a projection that um, mimicked the outline of the molding on that proscenium arch and at certain moments in the show that molding projection would just rock back and forth from left and it was so slight and you were like oh man i think i'm tripping and seeing stuff then you're like wait a (laughs) second is the whole stage moving and it was so uh delicately done and it made you want to (laughs) puke like seasickness just like season i love that these are the things we're finding out that we want in an opera we want to feel a little (laughs) nauseous we want to be a little freaked out we like it we like a monochromatic moment of shades of black (laughs) exactly and then of course that production you got some bloody hand stains on the wall you have a skeleton wearing jeweled earrings like making out with other people but that's pretty par for the course for the old hat really it's old hat honestly that's a mood Weston, what was your spooky Halloween opera? Well, uh, I had to uh, really kind of think about this one because, you know, I-, I wasn't going to go fully mainstream with it. Um, but then I was started to get you? out of some really weird territory and had to pull myself back a little bit. So my pulled back choice is Karl Heitz Stockhausen's um, uh, Donner, uh, no, uh, Zamstag aus Licht, which, you know, is that classic that everyone knows and loves. Um, uh, we've seen it. We've seen it so many times. We like, stand hard. It's so like, good. Bob Magic Flute. It, it, you know, it, it was actually. It was in my audition package for a while. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's sort of um, uh, the opposite of Matt's current uh, sweater weather costume. It's like it gives you the opposite <laughs> sort of experience. Uh, it is not cozy. Uh, so if you don't know the Licht cycle. You should look it up because it's absolutely wild. Safe it's to say cycle. no one knows the Licht cycle. <laughs> That's also fair. And the, the reason for that is there's not really I don't even think the people who perform it. in it know it. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. But that's part of that's part of the charm of this piece, I think. Uh, and charm is not a, not a word we usually use to describe um, the Licht cycle, but I use it. Or indeed Halloween. <laughs> uh, or Stockhausen. Um, but there's a certain, like, um, basically uh, each opera in the cycle is a different day of the week and they all center around sort of an archetypal character in uh uh usually religious mythology there's uh thursday's uh saint michael uh and zamstag which is the second opera that was written in the cycle even though it's known in no particular order uh stars um for want of a better word uh lucifer uh and and you, right there you've got the instant mix of like that late modernist sort of weirdness combined with this like sonic hellscape that just really hits you in that perfect halloween mood um because stockhausen was really trying to kind of push the boundaries of conventional theater um this is not like an opera you would go in to see and you have like a little orchestra pit and you have a nice little proscenium 
it's it takes place all around you and above you uh, in the stage directions for example in the in the clip we're about to see uh lucifer has come out and he's singing he's having a grand old time about what no one knows it doesn't matter he's just being spooky but his face is reflected is supposed to be reflected in the orchestra which is built up on i believe it's five or six uh, either five or six i can't remember stories right in front of the audience and there's uh, brass instruments all around you with bespoke percussion instruments creating this really sinister soundscape um and uh very specific lighting <laughs> choices and at the end of the opera, they're, they're supposed to like take coconuts and crack them up. That's not a joke. They also release a wild bird. Also not a joke. That's but like, from Monty Python. While you're, in, <laughs> while you're in it, it really is something that I think a thousand people could watch Zomstag Auslicht and all tell different stories about it. Some would be sad. Some would be horrifying. Some would be funny. And that's just ghost stories around a campfire, right? And that's why this operatic hellscape is so perfect this is from a uh a production uh, conducted by maxime pascal and uh lucifer is played by the uh baritone uh, damien pass <laughs> doesn't get um, much spookier than that <laughs> i mean i'm gonna have to agree with you wes and that was pretty horrifying and there's some musical device i mean i'm not so good at explaining music to people who are not musicians but um there's this repeated harmony or this chord that the band is playing which is already like an atonal dissonant chord you can't quite figure out what harmony it is mm-hmm. and then lucifer enters in on probably the lowest note of his registration absolutely and the, that was and the, hot yeah and the that chord the chord has a bunch of high overtones in it. And when you have that juxtaposition of very low and very high, that always creeps me out, you know? It's so, very unsettling, right? Because you, yes. uh, you you associate the the deep tones evolutionarily with, you know, thunder, uh, threats from a distance. But high tones are close. You hear them more closely because they don't travel as far. So you're, you're, you're getting on a very deep psychological level this feeling of run. But the entire opera is like that, and it surrounds you completely. Uh, I, I, uh, it's hard to fully explain just from a video or from audio, but it really does surround you, and uh, it's such a great well, piece. Well, even the design on that, I mean, Damien yeah. Pass, great perfect choice to, to play that part, Damien. Uh, I mean, he's bathed in this green light, and he's got this sort of like glycerin sweat on his on his bare chest. In he's this, got those washboard abs. <laughs> 
strange. Before we wrap it up, uh, Oliver, Matt, and Ashley, give us your Halloween opera. Oliver. You know, we just saw it last year. Wes and I, we went to mm. um, see Dog Days by David T. Little. Friend and, of the show. Uh, yeah, little did I know how precious. Little the- did you know. <laughs> the the plot of that show is, I mean, it's about families sort of trapped at home with each other and trying to survive uh, an apocalyptic event and um, getting familiar. desperate and running out of resources and toxic masculinity rears its ugly oh, head. Oh, <laughs> yeah, interesting. And you, and you think of like these people that are like proud boys and stuff like that, like all these parallels with that opera. Uh, it's horrifying and it's a really really fascinating show so it's so good so good matt cummings what is your halloween spooktacular opera for me i always come back to turn of the screw which is like Mm -hmm. not only the quintessential ghost story but it's the what in the world is going on in this story every production has a little bit different take on it because the opera is so ambiguous about what is happening at this manor uh, and it's gonna also going to be very different than what Netflix thinks is happening in the ma- in the haunting of Bly Manor. <laughs> um, but the opera has very very atmospheric music by Benjamin Britten to capture that kind of ethereal spookiness. Ashley, what opera really freaks you out? I'm gonna go dialogue of the Carmelites, not just because of the last few scenes, but because the notion of nuns singing together at any moment gives me a little bit of heebie-jeebies. <laughs> it's almost always a threat. <laughs> Well, of course, you can let us know what you think is a creepy opera that's perfect for Halloween. You just email us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So just about two years ago, Benjamin Bernheim made his American debut at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And I have to confess that sometimes I look at the Lyric Opera season brochure and I know that they're investing in certain singers and certain shows are going to have like the marquee, you know, t- names. And then there are some shows like, who's that, you know? And Benjamin Bernheim was one of those people. It's like, who is this guy? They're giving him the role of Faust? I haven't even heard of him. And I was there with Toby and Matt was also in the audience and it was the Prima. And I was there really to cheer on Eileen Perez and Christian Van Horn. And Benjamin Bernheim comes out and he's tall and he's handsome and his tone is heaven. <laughs> and uh, we get to the Cavatina, Salut, Demere, Chasse de the aria everybody knows. And he delivers this thing like he was born to sing it with like a soaring high C. And he stands right down, you know, downstage center, right in the spot. And it's like, who am I hearing? What? Where am I? This is incredible. And I became an instant fan. Matt? Stan, even. Yeah, it was, I mean, I had almost exactly the same experience in that you're listening. You're like, oh, this guy's pretty good. You know, we'll come back to that. We'll put a, pay, we'll put a pin in that and see, you know, how he does in the big moments. And man, did he deliver. That, it was a star-making performance. So, um we asked him about his influences and maybe some of the singers that uh, he listens to and why he is such a specialist in this French style. Can you talk about your the way you think about French opera, French romantic opera, and uh, your approach and maybe some of the singers who you are uh, trying to model yourself after? Well, I, well you, you forgot to name one, which is uh, Roberto Alagna, because he was yes. the first, actually, for me to, to hear. But actually, uh, also, there, w- there was one, because um, 
it was he was a baritone and uh, Gérard Souzet, who was ah, a, a fantastic. Yeah. When I was a kid, um, my grandmother she had a an old uh, tourne disc um, thing at home, and with this old trente-trois tours, we say in, in French, uh, big uh, big big discs. And there was uh, José Van Damme, there was Gérard Souzet, there was uh, Domingo, of course. But Gérard Souzet and his art of praising the French was very ex really exceptional especially because i think that uh, a lower voice has bigger chances to get the words and to get the the all the text in all the tessitura being being in a high high tessitura is complicated especially for sopranos to to make sure the french can be really tasted in the right way but for me it was roberto alagna especially when i was uh, i think 17 18 when i i heard his uh, one of his first cd and i I, I thought, wow, is it allowed to sing French like this? Because mm. I heard a lot of French uh, from a lot of singers, which I admire, like, like Nicolai Guedda and, and uh, Placido Domingo. But I have to say that art, that way of singing French, that elegance in the sound and in the line was really something that I, I really was, I was in a way a bit shocked that it's possible. But for many years, actually, singing French was not easy for me. And actually, I try to avoid singing French because it's my, my instruments, my physiology was just not ready for that. And it took me a few years before I could really begin to, to, to really sing it the way I want, which is tending to that, to the direction of these great artists. So can you put your finger on the things, the specific things that Roberto Alagna does or Gerard Suze does? I mean, we talk about phrasing and mm -hmm. we talk about diction, which is great for people like us who know right away what you mean, but are there like little details that you can point out for listeners? So when they go to your recordings or they go see your performance, they can listen for what you're trying to do. Well, what I'm trying to do is also making sure, sure, sorry, I'm not uh, blocked in a box of always singing the same phrases the same way. French has this amazing, these amazing possibilities to, to sing the same phrase, but in different ways to, 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 to use an S differently, to use the liaison between the words. Uh, it's like when, when you see in, in, um, in uh, La Vie Antérieure, J'ai longtemps habité, j'ai longtemps habité. It's all possible. Both are right. None of them is incorrect. And to make sure that whatever I do in French is uh, sort of instinctive and I decide on the moment, do I use that or do I or, or not? And I don't say that, I don't think that people should speak French to be able to sing French the right way, but it is a, it is a language like also other language that has to be tasted you cannot just arrive on stage and try to sing as, as same for Italian and Russian, but it comes with a lot of not work, but experiencing going in a room with a pianist and trying and trying and, and there is nothing that is wrong. Of course, there are things that are not correct, but everything is possible. And also making mistakes uh, in French, make people able singers able to just to find their own way through the French, because we are all different with this. Even though I admire Roberto Alagna, I don't really have the same approach to Roberto Alagna. Jonas Kaufmann has an amazing French. His French is perfect, but it's the Jonas Kaufmann French. So I think everyone has a different shade or a different approach of it. Nicolai Guedda also. So uh, I think it's about making little mistakes and about 
trying and singing and not trying to get it right at the first time or at the tenth time because now I sing Faust or Manon or Romeo and in 10 years it will be different. In 10 years I will have different ways to, to, to sing it. I will be able to, to, to make phrases differently. And this is, this is what is amazing with singing and not only with French, but about French. I recommend just to try and to listen and to be curious and to talk to French people, to talk to Belgium, Swiss, French, Canadian people about their experience of their own French. This is very important. And that kind of nuance really does come through in your singing. I can say as someone who studied singing and studied French, but I'm far from fluent. Um, and it kind of contrasts with the more international approach to singing in all of these languages that you get on the opera scene in general. Why do you think that kind of very specific uh, national style or, or ling linguistics-based style is relatively rare today? It's rare, but also I don't think that there is a French, I mean, yes, there is a French style depending on the period. But um, to be honest, when I compare with a lot of my colleagues, uh, for example, we, we sang French together with uh, Sabine de Vielle at a concert, at a, at a recital in Zurich. And we have very, we have different approaches and, but, and I love her French and it's, it fits her voice, it fits her color. Um, today, I think that we are trying to find also a shortcut. I think the IPA, the uh, Inter International Phonetic Alphabet, is a good solution for to, to approach something. But then to really go deep, deep into the text and deep into the, the comprehension, it's about time and it's about reading the text and trying to understand it. So I think that now we have these generations of singers of today, before it was the Alanya uh, generation and before that another one. And in 10 years will come new generations of French and non-French singers who will sing the French repertoire with their own approach. And I don't think that we should, we should uh, be in a box and sing that way only because some people need to roll the R's. I don't, I don't want to in French, but I have to flip it sometimes to make sure that my R's are understandable and can be heard. But it's all a matter of experience. And with the time, it changes. I don't I mean, know if I answered the question. There is, you, there's so much to, to go on this topic. And um, I think you're very kind to not to not name anybody. You know, it's like, oh, they're doing this wrong, whatever. You know, and you're complimentary. There is no compliment. wrong. Yeah. No, yeah. Sure. <laughs> there is maybe less enjoyable for the audience, but yeah. there is no wrong. But that's the thing. I mean, I don't know if audiences are learning because they're hearing A-list international singers yeah. singing Manon or whatever opera, and they hear the, all the critics and the you know the recording labels are after these singers and promoting this is the best of our art right now, you know. Yeah. So um, it they like this for a long time. Yes, it's it's part of this. If you if you I think for for the people who are listening and, and seeing this interview, it's also about the curiosity of the listeners and the people. If you just if you just listen to the crust of the cake, which I call the big big stars that are pushed forward, you, you only hear one percent of what exists. But if you begin to dig a bit and if you begin to to be curious about who sang what, then you will find a lot of other possibilities. Yeah. Well, the knife cuts both ways because we know that there <laughs> are there are singers, you know, that are based in their countries who don't have the international career because maybe their technique isn't good enough to put them in the biggest houses. 
but you have both of these things right now. Like your, your sound is incredible and it's attractive even if people don't know what the heck you're doing, you know, because you have, you're very good on stage. The tone is gorgeous. You're, you know, you're physically free. Like there's all these components that make an opera star, you know, and that's why we've, I'm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and plus you have a dimple. These are, <laughs> Does it does that help in sure. Chicago? I mean, look at my career. I mean, obviously. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you were scheduled to do Romeo that was uh that that wasn't able to happen due to the mm -hmm. pandemic but is that is that one that is going to continue to be a calling card for you yeah yeah, yeah. No, I, actually it was supposed to be my debut I was sort, sort of a crazy crazy project I do that a lot actually it was my my first Romeo was my first singing at the Met so it was going to be uh, a lot of pressure but also I was going to be your role debut yeah, it was going to be my role debut because okay. I, I thought you were saying your your Met debut, but you're talking it about it was my Met debut, and oh uh, my gosh, my role debut, <laughs> which is uh, well, it's it's part of this. I, I did that a lot in Vienna. I did my Nemorino debut with three days rehearsals. I did my <laughs> my uh, Bohem debut in in Zurich with very few rehearsals, and it's uh, it's also doing these things that I realized that I had the the nerves to to go on stage, being prepared for myself, but for myself but not really totally like having weeks of rehearsals before but sometimes it helps to jump into something to jump in the unknown so Romeo is something that I'm going to sing a lot in the next series and I'm really happy about this because this is young this is fresh this is the line is is perfect as for Manon that I, I it's one of my favorite roles De Grieux mm -hmm. is amazing because also De Grieux allows me to to develop and to to sing all the all the colors I have in my voice, going from the, the 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 pianissimo, also the mixed voice, to the fortissimo, I can really use everything that I have at my disposal at the moment with my voice, and so that's a great chance with this and with Faust too. Faust is written in a different way. I have to say it's less young, but uh, it's it's a fantastic role. And also, Danation, uh, Danation de Faust is coming next mm -hmm. season. Uh, well, actually, at the end of this season, I think, and um, and also Werther and Hoffman. So I try to not do everything at the same moment because I think every time I, I do a new role, I have to digest it because it's a, it's a long process. Especially when you and I go to roles like Werther, who are emotionally very hard, 
hard right. and complicated to to digest because it goes you have to go through a lot of very complex feelings uh it, you have to go deep and i go deep in the in the characters so so um so Verte is coming uh, next season if everything goes well it's will be in france and uh, hoffman i do will do my debut in germany next year um as a in a new production hoffman is a is a role that i really it's one of my dream role because when i was younger there was this vhs of Domingo singing it at I, I know exactly Dominic which one you're talking TV. about. Yeah, Agnes Balza, right? With Agnes Balza and Ileana Kutrubash, I think. Ileana Kutrubash, exactly. Who was Antonia? She was amazing, and and for me, Domingo was it. He was he was this this youth, this this uh, he had this energy, and uh, Hoffman is fantastic. I really I really love actually the progression of going to Olympia, Antonia, and and uh, Julieta. Um, and it's it's a, it's an opera that rely it's really it's on my shoulders. It's on the shoulders of the of the tenor who has to to tell the story. It's his thing, and it's a big big challenge. And I'm really I'm looking forward to seeing that. So, I think Hoffman. I mean, I'm crazy about this opera, but I think Hoffman more than any of the operas we talked about has such a clear progression of you know being this youthful, naive, first time in love character mm -hmm. to somebody who ends up becoming an alcoholic, maybe sex yeah. addict or drug addict, you know. Um, how do you, I mean, you haven't done it yet, but how are you thinking about approaching that? And also there's this throat busting, the Dieu de Calivresse, which is, I don't know how anybody sings that thing. It just sounds so <laughs> well, awfully first, hard. First, my, my approach is human is, what it what is it to fall in love numerous times many times and be disappointed and be feel betrayed and feel horrible about myself and hating the entire world that it didn't work this happens to it is very human hoffman is a very human guy that is just disappointed by life but especially disappointed by himself because he keeps doing the same mistakes so this is something that is very human and ending alcoholic is well, all ends, I think, uh, enjoying life and, and drinking a lot, but he's doing this in a quite early age. And I think it is more, more about, there is something of Werther also in, in Hoffman. There is something very depressed, very, um, how to say this, uh, a character that is really self-tortured. And uh, I, I also like these, these characters. You find that in De Grieux, you find that in, in, in Hoffman and in Werther. There is something very human. There is a human approach to, to find there. And this is, this is what I like to, to, to think of. What would I say if it was me? Being naive, falling in love with, with, a, with a robot or falling in love with, with a woman like Antonia or Julieta, because our hearts are human. And we have to go back every performance. We have to go back to the beginning of it to discover love for the first time to where, whether you sing Romeo or Faust or, or De Grieux, it has to be, you have to go from the beginning and be fresh and to be sort of a virgin in your mind. And mm -hmm. uh, it's also an exercise for, for a singer to, to repeat performances of an opera, you know the end but you have to go through all these feelings. You have to go through all this singing to, to tell a story because in the end we are storytellers. We tell a story to the, to the audience and this is, this is what I like is to, to make sure that I was, um, how to say, um, not convenient, but I was uh, convincing 
in uh, in telling that story to the audience, whatever the role is. Even if you're too tall. <laughs> even if I'm too tall, even if I'm too too fat or too thin or whatever, or too, uh, so, maybe I, you know I have gray hair here, so maybe <laughs> Romeo doesn't uh, doesn't apply to me anymore. But it's, uh, I I do. I, have I always think I always think about the first pictures of Roberto Alani I ever saw was him in white tights. I think it was that Royal Opera House production of uh, Romeo. Yeah, where, yeah, he makes was, um, Leontina Vaduva. I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he, he had was, great legs back then. So. I think he was doing karate or something. I forget. He was. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we are running out of time, and I, there's a couple more questions I want to ask you. Please. Um, I know you're in the middle of doing this recital tour right now, where you're singing Le Nid d'Ete and songs by Du Parc and songs by Strauss, uh, which are all things that I'm crazy about. Um, we don't always find singers with an international career, you know, who are in demand to sing you know, Romeo and Faust and Namorino, who take time to put together um, a long recital. Pro I mean, Le Nuit d'Ete by itself is, that's it's half long, of the program. It's, yeah, It's long and it's very difficult and it's a big challenge vocally. Yeah. But, uh, definitely, uh, if, I, if I may just- uh, Yeah, go. I've been working uh, when my, my coach, Karen Matheson arrived in Zurich five years ago from, from the Metropolitan Opera in New York. We began to work and we, we, we really, developed a trust she she began she really ended up being my ears for my recording being my my judge we have a we have a deal i told i told her the day you hear me singing like mm -hmm. you have to tell me and you have to 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 kick my ass because mm -hmm. uh, it's it's our deal she has to do that uh, <laughs> one day and so we 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 developed our our trust also through through the repertoire i mean i went through everything with her and then we thought we were invited uh, to, to do to do recitals. So while Le Nuit d'Ete, Le Nuit d'Ete, I will not be able to sing it the way I want until maybe I'm in 10 years or 15 years because it's very low. Yeah, and, I mean, Spectre de la Rose is not for a tenor to sing. And I'm, not, I'm definitely not in my comfort zone when I sing Le Nuit d'Ete, mm -hmm. uh, which is exactly why it's interesting to sing Le Nuit d'Ete because if I only sing, sing things where I'm in my comfort zones, I think it's just too easy mm. so i like to bring a bit of challenge and uh it's hard to sing it i'm not able to sing it the way i want but it's a big challenge first for the text the text yeah. is very intense uh it's storytelling it's berlioz uh world of music which is sort of it's an all it's he has his own world he doesn't it's so crazy his world i don't understand it i get lost in it <laughs> he has his own world and he it's not the guno world it's not the masne world it's the berlioz world and this is a big challenge you are singing morgan on this concert and this is a song that everybody knows because you know everybody programs this song because it's a genius song yeah um genius. it is because it's such a popular song do you have anything you want to say about it that maybe they should listen for in your well, well, it's 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 special also because actually I began to learn it um, before the lockdown in, in in Europe, and I sang it. We we worked on it with Carrie numerous times, and we were never satisfied. She was not satisfied with her the, the way she was playing it, and it, she she told me she remembers she worked she worked on it with with very very big pianists and and conductors in New York, and I was never satisfied. And then. After there was this little thing thinking that every day in Europe and in the world we were thinking this is the end of the world, everybody is going to die from this from this uh, uh, virus, and mm. 
this is a catastrophe and it is a catastrophe. And at some point we thought that, I thought that this could be a message of hope because the mm. first phrase is, and tomorrow the sun will shine again. Whatever day it is, tomorrow it shines again. Mm. And it's it became to me, maybe maybe it's it's my own version of Morgan. It's just about peace, about finding the peace in yourself and knowing that there is hope every day for the day after. Yeah. So it may be not maybe not as deep as maybe you could see it, but it is my version of it because it's also very human to think today was a hard day. Today we lost so many people. Today this the, the news are horrible. Today the world is 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 suffering. People are suffering. Singers are not singing. People have to change uh, their jobs. People have to to choose between between performing music or eat. And this is a catastrophe for our, our opera world and classical music world. Mm-hmm. And for me, this is suddenly this thing that, yes, but as long as there are people like me who are lucky enough and have the chance to sing, there is a message of hope saying, well, tomorrow, tomorrow is another day. As we in the States are watching, uh, as the European houses and companies are starting to be able to open up a little bit and navigate this pandemic in a very different way than how we're experiencing it here. Um, How has that adjustment to the COVID era performances been to you? So for me, there was the the first experience of the reopening of the Opera House in Zurich in in July with the Sabine de Vielle. We did a recital together. And it was uh, half half the audience could be there, <clears throat> but it was really people respected this very well. Mm-hmm. Then it was Salzburg Festival in summer, where I was very I was honored to be invited for the hundredth year anniversary of the festival, and people really really respected the rules um, very well. People wear the mask. People had some some hydroalcoholic gel for the hands. People would would, would wash their hands all the time. And the people were so happy to finally go out, go out and see a performance because we also forget what for some people, some people need sports, some people need Netflix, some people need Amazon Prime and some people need opera. 
And people need portamentos executed yeah, correctly. Yeah, they do. They do too. That's true. <laughs> but he to to be able to see. Oh, I'm very sorry. I received a little call. Sorry. We're good. Did you hear? Me? Do you hear me? Yeah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Do you need to answer that call? No, absolutely not. But okay. I I just need to go back to 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 you. Do can you record it now? It's yeah, fine. it's fine. Yeah. Perfect. And uh, what was very amazing, really amazing, was to, to see how people were happy to 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 be in in an audience, to see the lights going down, and to to see the singers going on stage. That was really, really, really strong. But also, I see that in Europe we are very lucky to have still uh, opera houses performing. The the whole production of Traviata in Bordeaux was a huge success. There was no problem, no case. Uh, we were extremely attentive and, and cautious with the with the virus and with the being responsible for, for ourselves. Now I see, for example, in Zurich, I, I will begin the, the rehearsals from Manon next week. And uh, we all singers have been uh, designated in a group. So I am in the group with the, the singer singing Manon and the singer singing Lesco. We are a group. We have to stick together during the rehearsals and we are not allowed to get close to another group of singers who are also involved in other productions at the same time mm -hmm. to minimize the risks hmm. and to make sure that we, yeah, we, we, we keep really in, in mind that it's a danger. It's a potential danger. We still have private lives. We, we meet people, but we have to be very careful. So some opera houses come with very different uh, protocols and we have to be extremely respectful of that and uh, after Manon in Zurich I will be in uh, Munich for La Bohème and I know they have a very different also very different protocol. I am so lucky that I'm one of the singers that is able to sing today <clears throat> that whatever whatever protocol is in, in, in place I'm, I'm just happy to comply I have to say. Well, tell the management of these opera companies that you talked to a pair of Americans, but it was through Zoom. So yeah, there was no chance you're, of you're, infection. You're covered. Being safe. <laughs> oh, I wish we could continue this conversation, but um, it's it's time to end. Please tell Carrie Ann Matheson that we would love to have her as a guest because she sounds like a brilliant woman. And I'm so she curious is, about her I, ideas. I, really, I urge you please to, to do an interview with her because she has so much to say. She has so much guidance and so much advice to, to, to give to, to, to young singers. She is mm. really an amazing person and a, one of the greatest coach I've met. Yeah. And I'm very happy for, for her to, that she goes to San Francisco. I'm very happy for the singers there who will enjoy her, her experience because now she has a European experience. And it's very important for American, American singers to know what is expected for them from them when they come to Europe because it's mm -hmm. a different world from from the US and I think she will do an amazing job there this just in the two-minute drill all right listen up here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week Lyric Opera Chicago has officially canceled its 2020-21 season due to ongoing concerns over COVID-19 Unfortunately, as Lyric announced the cancellation via video conference, artists concerned about the status of their contracts and health benefits were not permitted to ask questions or press the issue further during the meeting. A statement from the Singer Union read, quote, AGMA will not tolerate this. We will reach out again soon with more specifics as to our plans and strategies. We will need your help, efforts, and talents. The fight isn't over yet. We are AGMA and we will endure. 
The Wiener Staatsoper has announced that it will make face masks mandatory during performances as of October 25th, even while patrons are seated. The decision came a day after Austria logged its biggest daily number of new COVID-19 cases during the whole pandemic. Belgium's Prime Minister Alexander de Croo announced new COVID-19 restriction measures that limit the number of spectators in theaters and concert halls to a maximum of 200 people. Quote, Nine out of ten provinces are at alarm level four, and the last province is going in the same direction. We have one goal, which is to limit contacts that are not strictly necessary, said de Croo. The country has already shut down bars and restaurants and imposed an overnight curfew. Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has also announced a set of drastic COVID-19 measures, which will include closures of opera houses, theaters, and concert halls until November 24th. The Prime Minister unveiled a full set of measures which also include the suspension of gyms, swimming pools, and wellness centers. Sports events and competitions will also be suspended. And in response to the actions of Prime Minister Conte, Ricardo Muti published an open letter imploring him to open theaters. Quote, while I understand your difficult responsibilities, closing concert halls and theaters is a grave decision. To define the theatrical and musical activity as superfluous is an expression of ignorance and so is a lack of culture and sensitivity. He goes on, Thousands of artists and workers from all sectors of the performing arts are insulted by this decision and left fearful for their futures. In a most unconventional transaction, the San Francisco Conservatory of Music has purchased Opus 3 artists, which represents sopranos Christine Gerke and Lizette Oropesa. Mezzo-sopranos Stephanie Blythe, Kate Lindsay, and Tamara Mumford also represented, and bass Morris Robinson along with baritone Nathan Gunn. Opus 3 president David Foster says the agency would have an arm's-length relationship with students at the San Francisco Conservatory and will continue to recruit clients from Juilliard, Curtis, Eastman, and elsewhere, adding that the sale was needed due to the unpredictable financial future caused by the pandemic. Update from last week's drill. Looks like Weston's dunk on Quibi was the final nail in their coffin. The struggling short-form mobile video startup is shutting down after the company failed to find a buyer. As far as that Fabiano biodoc goes, may we suggest the Dallas Opera Network? <laughs> On the disabled list, Tamina Goshevili has pulled out of the Wiener Staatsoper production of Unid und Jägen due to health reasons, clearing the way for Australian soprano Nicole Carr to make her Staatsoper debut. And exit stage right, Lithuanian bass, Vatsavlas Daunras has died at the age of 84. Soprano Rosanna Carteri has passed away at the age of 89, making her debut in Rome at the age of 19 and La Scala at the age of 21, her career took off very early in a big way. She also made a number of very fine recordings including a highly regarded Traviata for the RCA label with Cesare Valetti and Leonard Warren. She abandoned her career in her early 30s to devote herself to her family. And on this day, October 26th, in 1685, it was the birth of Domenico Scarlatti, not to be confused with his father, Alessandro, who has been immortalized by one yellow book that most of us own. In 1783, it was the first performance of Mozart's Great Mass in C minor in Salzburg with Constanze Weber, his wife, as soprano soloist. 
Technically not an opera unless you count Peter Sellers' inserting the Kyrie from this mass into Clementa di Tito. In 1811, it was the first performance of Rossini's The Chivico Stravagante in Bologna. In 1822, more bel canto, it was the first performance of Donizetti's Chiara e Serafina, also known as The Pirates, Arr, in Milan. Arr, in Milan. In 1907, it was the first performance of Julius Bittner's Die Rote Gret in Frankfurt. That's an Austrian composer of whom I'm sure Weston owns all the complete works. In 1917, it was the posthumous premiere of Mussorgsky's opera The Ferret Sorchinsky. And in 1961, it was the first performance of Robert Ward's Pulitzer Prize-winning opera, The Crucible, based on the Arthur Miller play in New York City. And that is your two-minute drill. Oliver, tell us, what were we listening to there as we came out of the drill? That was uh, just a little bit of the Kyrie from the Mozart C minor Mass, Kirschel 427, uh, as <laughs> sung by Janine, Janine de Beek in mm. the Peter Sellers production of La Clemente de Tito. I think that was in the Netherlands opera. And Janine de Beek is flawless in this. She looks amazing. She's flawless but, all the time. Yeah, but she's true. singing like a goddess in that. And like you can just look all at the, the chorus and they're like, I can't even do this right now because she sounds so incredible. So. <laughs> Ashley, if you want to talk about Halloween Nightmares, lyric opera of Chicago, what's going on right now, what do you think? I smell a labor war brewing at Lyric. Um, insiders are telling me this is probably going to get ugly uh, based on the timing of when we record, as to when this came out, as to how quickly Agma will act. Um I think we'll have more to talk about next week. So cross your fingers and hope for the best, but stay but tuned. But I mean, we've seen so many artists already come forward and just say, how dare you, yeah. you know, bringing up the fact that it's a pandemic and this is the best you could do for us, you know? Yeah. We're going to take a deep dive into that likely next week is uh, get some more details on that. Big problems, of course, horror stories coming out of Vienna coming out of Belgium and coming out of Italy, where we have a bit of a, a clash of the titans here. Uh, Matt Cummings, where, where do you fall on the uh, Conte versus Muti okay, fist fight? So, Ricardo, I get it. I really do. This pandemic has hit artists so hard, and no one really seems to care. But these lofty appeals, imploring for things to just be reopened like nothing is wrong, do not make people take the performing arts more seriously. They make us look shallow and frivolous and like we care more about our livelihoods than people's lives because people are dying here. And investments need to be made in the arts into moving forward, but just reopening theaters is not the way to do that. You can't use a scalpel and say, well, these people can mostly follow rules when you need a chainsaw to cut down this tree. Open the schools. Open all the like, schools. <laughs> like, I want opera to be open too, but 
I'm not, but who's going to be able to go? Yeah. I mean, the the only people who can see opera after they're dead are presumably zombies. Or people <laughs> that, in was that how we tied that back to Halloween, <laughs> this, George? This is my point. Like, I, And I should preface this by, you know, depending on which way you look at my contracts, I sort of work for Ricardo Muti. Um, but Ricky, come on. No one can see opera if they're dead. Public health is not political. The world is on fire. I get what you're trying to say. Come on. Come on. Pull that lens back just a little bit. Think about the people that are, I don't know, three employment tiers below you and like how much health insurance they have. That's all I'm asking. So the Opus 3 thing is sort of weird and there's sort of a sort tell. Of. <laughs> there's a sort of a tell weird. even in the statement. The fact that David Foster would even have to say, oh, and we're not going to recruit people just from the conservatory. I mean, I get that they're looking at students uh, that are you know going through, but I always thought that getting representation... You have to have a bunch of work underneath your belt. It's not just people who are doing well in conservatory. But I see. I feel like they tipped their hand here. Anyway, um, I mean, well, I, they they say arms length. I wasn't quite sure. Are these you know students being held at arms length because they're stinky? I mean, maybe there's going to be a chance to teach people more about like how this industry actually works, which is something that most conservatories like don't do enough to teach students about. So if that comes from this like that would be great especially considering everything is totally upended and no one knows like where work is going to come from next anyway but and maybe during maybe during the lockdown opus 3 will offer mentorship to um those conservatory students from some other roster that'd be really cool i mean one other point though uh how much cash did sfcm just like have on hand that they could buy an artist management company. Whose that tuition was... dollars is that? <laughs> exactly. They should have used it to buy Quibi. <laughs> well, okay. I'm. This is a mea culpa. I do apologize for single-handedly destroying Quibi uh, with the, uh, last week's you episode. You broke it. It's okay because we're going to get a great movie out of the fall of Quibi produced by Jeffrey Katzenberg, just it's, like Shrek was a takedown of the Disney company. It's only going to be 10 minutes long, though, is the problem, and I apologize <laughs> for that. We're going to call it the curse of Weston, which is basically every time Weston decides that he's going to predict something's going to collapse, we're all going to go like this. (laughs) And you'll say, roll tide. (laughs) Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us wherever you are however you're listening if you're watching too glad that you are here for the conversation about opera good call bad call gonna start with oliver camacho thanks uh well i'm (laughs) i'm devastated that it's over uh lovecraft country was incredible there were so many great episodes i wasn't on board with every single one of them but i enjoyed watching all of them uh, the penultimate episode featured, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Janiah Brugger in a surprise cameo. Um, and that music is now available where you get your music on all the streaming platforms and maybe even for purchase on iTunes. That music is by Laura Karpman and Raphael Sadiq. The score to the HBO series Lovecraft Country. Matt Cummings. Um, speaking of my hometown earlier, Pittsburgh Opera this week did a live stream t- performance of uh cozy which was cut down to be pandemic length and set during the 1918 spanish flu pandemic so that everyone all the singers and audience members were wearing masks and socially distant 
Um, and that, that is available f- to stream on their website until November 6th. Uh, and I highly recommend checking it out because it's a really cool way to make art in these times. Weston Williams. Well, speaking of COVID, uh, the Greek National Opera has a kind of a fun COVID video uh, <laughs> out, which is a weird thing to say. Uh, it stars baritone Harris Adrianos uh, informing patrons about COVID rec- uh, regulations in character singing Madamina as Leporello from Don Giovanni. And it's kind, it's very charming and a good reminder to wear your mask, people. Ashley Hardgrave. Uh, so there's this newer podcast out called Smartless. It's uh, it's Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, and Will Arnett, uh, which is an interesting combination. And they interview a lot of different yeah. folks. And uh, and the September 21st episode, I've been catching up on back episodes. The September 21st episode is with Gustavo Dudamel. Uh, and it's really interesting. Fun fact, Jason Bateman is a classical music fan. So to have somebody on the panel interviewing him who, who knows a bit about classical music and then have folks, and of course Sean Hayes is a pianist, and then Will Arnett is... Well, he's kind of the me, uh, so he's cracking jokes in the corner. Um, but it's, it's just a really charming interview. Dudamel's lovely. It's a great. It's just a nice palate cleanser for all of the heavier stuff that you might see. So, Smartless podcast from September twenty first. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Podcast version of our show is available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. A thank you to Lark in the Oak for arranging our interview with Benjamin Bernheim. For him and our co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you steal Halloween candy from your sleeping children. We're back with an all-new show next week. Ashley Hardgrave tells us about the nasty women of opera. It's our election episode with a very special surprise guest whom we can't tease yet because we don't want to get burned. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more vote counting. Join us! <laughs>